there was definitely like this rush of like, oh my God, we're doing it. We're doing it. We're kicking butt. <laughs> like, we can't wait to tell people how many birds we got. Welcome to Unladylike, where we find out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And today, we're getting back to nature, putting away our phones, unless, of course, you're listening to this on your phone, and hanging out with the birds. Believe it or not, y'all, bird watching is one of the fastest growing outdoor hobbies in the States. To quote the morning dove, Caroline, it's cool, cool, cool. <laughs> I'll see your morning dove, Kristen, and raise you a yellow-headed blackbird which says, Don't you dare! Now, y'all might be thinking, one, have some birds gotten into the ladylike studio? Answer, no, it's just it's just Caroline and me yep. <laughs> spending too much time Googling bird calls. And two, y'all, bird watching? Isn't that the opposite of an unladylike hobby? Answer? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, the average American backyard bird fan is a 53-year-old wealthyish white lady. But get ready, y'all, because today we're breaking out our binoculars and crisscrossing the country in search of the feminist underbelly of bird watching. That's right. And first up, we're heading to a pristine pocket of New Jersey where some bird-loving moms are sticking their beaks into the world of competitive bird watching. Then it's back in time to meet America's original feather rufflers before finally landing in the real Grand Valley, an avian paradise where birds, along with their human observers, are caught in a battle on the border. All to find out. How has the daintified hobby of bird watching inspired women to defy society's ladylike personal and political roles? If you're looking for a New Jersey experience that's like the exact opposite vibe of Jersey Shore, get yourself to Cape May Point State Park. Every May, hundreds of bird fanatics form teams and flock there for a 24-hour competition to see who can identify the most birds. Welcome to the World Series of Birding. For competitive bird watchers, known as birders, the World Series is the event of the year. Anyone can enter, but if you want to have any shot of winning, you gotta know your birds. A barred owl it says, who cooks for you? Who cooks for you? <laughs> <laughs> who cooks for you indeed, feminist barred owl? And that delightful mnemonic comes courtesy of one-fifth of a Crackerjack World Series of Birding team. They're tough, they're smart, and a motherload of fun. There's Holly. She listens to birdsong recordings on her, her commute. She's like a ringer on the team. Uh, and then there is Rhonda, and she is also awesome at birding. She's good at taking up a new challenge, uh, like, like, like a good Boy Scout. Um, and then there is Melissa. She's got, always got the, the great positive attitude, and she, and she crushes fundraising because she hand sews 
like a bajillion little ornamental birds for us to sell <laughs> at Christmas time. Um, and then there is Carrie. She is our fearless driver. Uh, while everybody else is looking out the window for birds. <laughs> she and I are like the front seat team. She's the driver and I'm the navigator. And this? I'm not much of a studier. Is Kellen. So I'm like navigation and logistics and, uh, you know, yelling at people to go faster. And together they make up the, the momlets. Momlets. So being a team of all women uh, makes us uh, definitely a rarity. Being a team of all moms, it makes us a total like novelty act. We're like the Weird Al Yankovic of World Series of Birding. <laughs> but don't let that Weird Al comparison fool you. The momlets know what they're doing. Yes, this is why we so desperately wanted to like have all five of us because it's like such an equal parts, like everybody does 20%. Like there's no one who gives or, you know, contributes more than the other. Okay, obviously we would have loved to talk to all five of the momlets, but we're just going to be really real with y'all. We don't own that many microphones. So we made them go all Hunger Games and choose a podcast tribute. And they couldn't have chosen a better Katniss than Kellen. She's a mom of three. And even though Kellen now works for a nature center, she hasn't always been a bird nerd. But there's one important woman in her life who has. I guess I should shout out to my mom, who is the original birder in our family, who is, who is the grandmotherly type who's always feeding up like 10 feeders in her backyard. Uh, to, you know, bring all the birds near so she can appreciate them. She loves feeding the birds. If you went to a, a Wild Birds Unlimited store, I imagine that's who your average customer would be. Kellen's birding journey started when her mom introduced her to a town legend, this retired guy named Jim Wilson. That's right. Now, Jim Wilson is a volunteer who started a birding club at the school where Kellen's kids go. And one day, while Kellen was talking to him, this light bulb went off and she was like, oh, birding is kind of magical. I remember very specifically standing with Jim Wilson once and he, we're just talking. We're in the middle of a conversation and he just like cocked his head for a second and he's like, oh, that was a red-eyed vireo. And like, I hadn't even heard anything. Like we were in this busy place where, and, and it was like, he was keyed into this whole world of other animals having this conversation that he can hear and all the rest of us, it's just background noise. I was, and that, that was like a moment for me. I'm like, that's cool. <laughs> I'd like my kid to be able to know that language when they grow up. So Kellen signed up her oldest for Mr. Wilson's club, and then her middle, and then her youngest made three. They loved it. Especially the outings. Every spring, Mr. Wilson would register a team for that big, exciting competition. The, the World, World Series of Birding. Of birding. He made it super easy. He's like, we're going to stay at this hotel. We're going to eat at these places. I'm going to, you know, you need to wake the kids up at five o'clock tomorrow morning because that's what birders do. Um, and he, he just had it all laid out for us. Events like this one are what's known in the birding world as a big day. And the name of the game is Unique Species. So, like, if you see 100 crows, say, that's just one type of bird you get to check off. 
So basically, you drive or bike around all day looking for birds. You can compete solo or as a team, and there's a separate division for kids. Some folks take the big day pretty seriously, scouting out spots to find special birds months in advance. At the end of the event, there's even a little finish line to cross. And then uh, you make a, a, a big, you know, ceremony of presenting your completed checklist to the finish line officials who verify um, that you haven't checked off that you saw a flamingo or a puffin or something like that. And, you know, all of this birding goes on an honor system type thing. There's no one following you around checking what you saw. It's sort of a self-regulating sort of mechanism. Now, unlike those average 53-year-old white ladies birdwatching casually in their backyards, your average competitive birdwatchers or birders are basically those white ladies' husbands. I mean, not literally. They just tend to be middle-aged white dudes. You know, it, it's, it's sort of a manly thing to, like, take this, like, cute little pastime and we're going to buy expensive equipment and make it into a race. And... <laughs> God, buy a, I need a giant camera and a, like a thousand dollar spotting scope. And, uh, you know, there's also that, that sort of nitpicky sciency, like, well, do you know exactly what species of bird that is? Like, uh, you know, we got to name them and count them. And that mentality, I think, is uh, what, what gets you way more guy teams than, than women teams. Caroline, get this. One study I found from 2015 examined the gendered nature of bird watching, and it supports what Kellen's saying. Like, women tend to be just more chill about birding. Like, we're just as interested and committed to the hobby as the guys, but women are just likelier to find satisfaction in simply seeing or listening for the birds on our own time and typically in our own backyards. Kellen has had plenty of time to observe these gender dynamics in the wild because her first few times at the World Series, she and her future Momlets teammates were not competitors. They were chaperones. So we all came the first year and, you know, ate lunch and took long walks. Um, And then after the second year of, uh, you know, taking walks and having lunch uh, and, you know, meeting the kids here and there and Mr. Wilson, um, You know, Mr. Wilson would kindly invite us to go along on some of the scouting missions and, you know, see what the kids were seeing. And it turned out, you know, some of us knew some stuff and people were like, oh, that's a semi-palmated plover. And Mr. Wilson was like, good job. And we so we were joking like, ah, yeah, we should have our own team next year. And like everybody kept on joking. We should have our own team next year. And I was like, well, why don't we have our own team next year? All we're doing is going to lunch and window shopping. Like we're going to be in Cape May anyway. Let's do this thing. <laughs> so where did the, uh, the team name come from? Momlets? How did y'all decide on that? So my, my oldest, uh, son's team was called the Eaglets back in the day. And when their all of their younger siblings formed a team, they they decided to be the sort of the owlets in honor of the eaglets. And then so when we were looking for a name, like the momlets just seemed totally obvious. And we thought about things like the the cheesy momlets or like a Western momlet or, you know, 
Because <laughs> like, because <laughs> like egg reference, like eggs, birds get it. Like ah, uh, but it's really funny. Uh, you know, the big quote was, you know, we're the only uh, team who ever gave birth to another World Series of birding team. <laughs> so after years of learning bird calls by osmosis. Last May, the momlets put on their layers, doused themselves in bug spray, and grabbed their binoculars and field guides. It was their first official foray in competitive birding, and they were as prepared as they could be. Who brings the snacks? Oh, gosh, that's like everyone. Like, we're moms, right? <laughs> so I, there, was, there was giant, like, Costco-sized things of, you know, like, pretzel nuggets and, you know, three pound bag of Skittles and stuff like that, you know, was all that's part of the ritual. Definitely. All the essentials. <laughs> so with all of these different roles on the team, how do y'all actually work together to spot the birds? Carrie and I are in the front seat just like making sure that we're getting to the actual location you need to go. So we're we're definitely focused on that. And the other three are like in the back of the minivan <laughs> looking out all of the windows um, and a, a lot of times what we'll do is, you know, we'll be driving down this sort of, you know, wooded path, say, in a state park, and all the windows are down and we're just driving super slowly, or we'll, we'll pick a spot and everybody just gets out and then you just listen. Uh, I don't know how much you know about birding, but a lot of it is done by ear. Most of it is done by ear. If you just stood in the woods and tried to stare at trees, like, you would never just see a bird. It just... It's, it's pretty rare. So what you're doing is you're listening. Uh, and so this is where um, Holly and Rhonda really, like, being, you know, able to memorize what, you know, all the, all the different sparrow songs, all the different warbler songs, all of the chickadees and the nuthatches and the whippoorwills and, like, all, all of these things have distinct songs and I'd be like, yep, that's a bird. <laughs> uh, and those guys can be like, oh, that's, you know, that's, oh, that's a gray crested net catcher. But the, the thing, and, and I don't, I don't want to out us to the officials of the World Series of Birding, but, but your teammates are all supposed to be able to recognize said gray crested net catcher call. It can't just be like you're running around with, you know, two people who know it. So what you do is hopefully we have learned enough that, that we know the call. But if we don't, we all get in the car, roll up the windows, get on iBird Pro and play a gray crested net catcher song. And we all go, yep, that's what we heard. So we all have, all five of us have to have heard that song for it to be something that we can check off the bird list and say, yep, we got it. <laughs> <laughs> I love this, Caroline. I know. It's so passionate. They're so passionate. I know. I'm just imagining like a minivan rolling through some park and then screeching to a halt and like the doors slide open and five soccer bombs <laughs> poke their heads out like they're the gang from Scooby-Doo or something. Yeah, but was the Scooby gang dedicated to working around the clock? So you mentioned earlier that uh, the World Series of Birding is a 24-hour event. And I am just like, A, I'm not really an outdoorsy type of person. But B, I am definitely not someone who can pull an all-nighter. So are you guys like literally traipsing through the woods for 24 hours straight? So there, there are people who will absolutely do, you know, almost the full 24 hours because uh, you're going to 
you're going to get owls, obviously, at night. You're going to get uh, whippoorwills and chuckwills widows at night. But it's the, uh, the dawn chorus is really sort of the gold standard. So, you know, from sort of 4.35 a.m. to 8 or 9 a.m. is when it's hot. That's when you want to run around and hit your, your best locations if you're a team who's going to get 100 birds, you're going to get 60 of them by 9 a.m., 70. Uh, and then uh, the whole rest of the day, you're picking up one bird here, two birds there. And after a few afternoon coffee runs at Wawa, which we had to Google it, it's a local gas station chain. By 8, uh, 8.30, you're pretty tired. You got up at, you know, 3.45 to get the kids out of the door get yourself ready, drive around like crazy people all day. You know, we're done. And so you you head to that finish line. At the end of their day, the Momlets had a very respectable 90 birds on their list. Hey, that's not bad. I mean, I'm not a birder, but, but that sounds like a lot. So our, our kids got, I think, uh, 128 this year, <laughs> to, to give you a, a benchmark. And then the winning, like... Uh, you know, Cornell Lab of Ornithology college team, they got in like the 200, like 205 or something like that, again, to give you a little perspective. Well, of course, Cornell did. I mean, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So at what point do you guys start to get a little competitive, though? Um, For us, there was there was no question of us like winning anything. We were we were definitely not for that. And there's definitely like just a rush when I spotted a a blue grosbeak in the trees that like everyone was hearing it, but no one could see it. And I found it and I was like, I found the blue grosbeak. And I was like the champion of the world for like two minutes. So it was the best feeling ever. Uh, And our driver, Carrie, who is um, just as bird challenged as I am, she we were just like going slow. We were about to like make a turn. And she's like, is that a turkey on the side of the road? And we're all like, oh, Carrie, you found the turkey. Like a, like a turkey turkey? Like a turkey. There was a goddamn turkey just standing on the side of the road. Kellen said that the whole day is just a minivan full of laughter. And that's a direct quote, y'all. It's so heartwarming. Especially because Kellen says the moms aren't exactly BFFs. Like, outside of the momlets, Kellen and the other ladies don't have a ton in common. So on a personal level, what do you get out of the World Series of Birding competition? Um, For me, uh, it's a fun way to get out of my head, get out of my regular, like, the, the hamster wheel of, like, uh, mom, full-time mom, full-time work getting everybody to soccer, getting everybody to to, do brush their teeth and unload the dishwasher and like, come on, everybody, hurry up, you know, to just going somewhere different and it's beautiful and you're out in nature and your kids are doing it too. And so it's like, you don't feel there's no bad mom. Like I'm abandoning my kids and I'm doing this solely for myself thing. It's like, you're sharing this. And so it's like, it's all the good stuff sort of wrapped up in one in a way. Why don't you think that more um, more moms are involved in in birding? 
Um, and it, this is my little anecdotal armchair thing. Um, but there's a lot of midlife men, you know, 40s, 50s, who I, I think men just feel more comfortable being like, hey, hon, i I'm going to just get up on Sunday morning and spend five hours walking around in the woods. You cool with that? Okay, bye. Um, whereas women in the middle of life, 40s, 50s, are like, I'm taking care of my kids. I have my aging parent who needs me. I still am being pulled in all of these different directions of all these people who need me. And um, much like I think, you know, you don't get a lot of women who are going to play golf all day on Sunday or watch NFL, that same sort of dynamic, like women have shit to do on the weekend. (laughs) Do you ever see yourself as like going and joining a co-ed World Series of Birding team? Or do you just really like sticking with these ladies? Um, there wouldn't be a need for me to ever be on a different team. This is like, this team is absolutely 100% born out of our specific circumstance of, um, our five awesome kids who just keep going year after year. And so we are all bonded together by that. And so there, there wouldn't be a reason to ever be on a team with anyone else unless unless we had someone join join our team which you know hey we're, we're cool although there's not there's not that many more room in the minivan frankly <laughs> so will will the momlets compete again oh absolutely yeah we're definitely on for this year we were studying we just went out yesterday morning we saw a, uh, a black crown night heron it was awesome So when it comes to our personal lives, birding can sometimes have the unladylike effect of allowing us to claim some time and space just to, you know, be our own real person. And when it comes to our political lives, birdwatching has long been a catalyst for driving women to action. We'll sort through that nest of issues when we come back. We're back and still flying high from the World Series of Birding and Kellen's gaggle of momlets. Our bird puns can't stop, won't stop. Besides, aren't bird metaphors basically like a feminist tradition? Oh, totally. Like, I am so excited to take this uh, feminist history tidbit detour. So in Mary Wollstonecraft's Vindication on the Rights of Women, which lit the match of first-wave feminism in the West, she wrote... Confined then in cages like the feathered race, women have nothing to do but to plume themselves and talk with mock majesty from perch to perch. Birds not in cages also became like the unofficial mascots of the suffrage movement, which, you know, Caroline, all these historical tidbits are making me think we've got some feathered claptrap to unpack. Unpack the Claptrap is where we peer through our feminist binoculars to find out why things are the way they are. And for today's Claptrap, we're tracing how unladylike relationships between women and birds goes far beyond symbolism. 
It involves ladies breaking out of their domestic cages, taking flight all the way to Washington, metaphorically speaking, and dismantling an entire fashion industry in the process. So to start, we've got a time travel back to the late 19th century when classy folks really went bonkers for birds. Already, some of the most popular ladylike hobbies of the day included not too stimulating pursuits like nest watching, bird drawing, and bird watching, preferably from indoors. Outdoor bird watching, meanwhile, was a dude's only pastime because it basically consisted of gentlemen spotting the birds and shooting them. And then, you know, maybe eating or stuffing them. It was kind of a grisly affair. But then in the 1880s, thanks to innovations like lightweight cameras, binoculars, and handy-dandy field guides, outdoor birding without that whole blood sport aspect was made possible. Those innovations did not, however, make women any more welcome to leave their ladylike perches and bird watch as they pleased. An SBF, or single birding female, would have been considered reckless for tramping out in the woods alone. Tramp is right. (laughs) I know. Not to mention, women were considered too innately feeble to successfully spot birds in the brush in the first place. But while women weren't traipsing unchaperoned through the woods with binoculars, they still got up close and personal with the birds. See, fashionistas of the day sported outrageous feathered hats. Some even featured whole stuffed birds. Yeah, so we pulled up a couple pictures, and in case you're just thinking like, oh, maybe it's like one of those fascinators that, you know, some of those women wore to Meghan Markle's wedding. Um, No, these things were like seven feet high. I mean, stacked high with feathers and poofs. I mean, they they were truly, truly outrageous. There's that scene in My Fair Lady where she goes to the race and she has her aristocratic debut and she's wearing this huge hat. Kind of looks like one of those. Yeah. Or take one of those giant oversized straw hats that everyone was wearing to the beach this summer and then just put like an, an entire Thanksgiving turkey atop. And that's pretty much the scale. By the 1890s, in large part because of this feathered hat megatrend, 200 million birds were being killed every year in the U.S., Great egrets, blue herons, and seabirds were killed by the tens of thousands. Until one pair of Boston socialites decided to flip Big Feather a bird. That's right. In 1896, Harriet Hemingway read in a magazine that Florida herons were being slaughtered for the plume trade. And now Harriet was used to speaking up and getting out for a cause. She'd been a vocal abolitionist and frequently birdwatched with her husband, Augustus. Reading about those Florida herons lit the match of Harriet's activist and naturalist passions. Yeah, and so basically Harriet was like, oh, hell no. She texted her fellow socialite and lady cousin, Minna B. Hall, being like, girl, our ridiculous ass hats are wiping out entire species of birds. It is a bloodbath. Bird emoji, knife emoji, sad crying emoji. I mean, exactly. So Minna sends a group text to all of her and Harriet's fellow rich lady friends. The pair hosted tea parties to convince ladies of Boston to ditch their feathered hats and boycott the trend. P.S. Ostrich plumes were okay to wear, they said, since their fancy feathers could be collected, you know, without killing the ostrich. Thank goodness they could still wear ostrich feathers, Caroline. I mean, could you imagine? But all that tea paid off. Because y'all, Harriet and Minna, all H&M, 
they effectively kicked off America's first major environmental movement. Like, some male conservationists before them had tried to get people to care about the birds, but Harriet and Minna and their lady friends were the ones who actually made it happen because their boycotts and get-togethers took off and soon grew into the National Audubon Society, which was named after a naturalist illustrator dude, and it already existed when H&M came around, but barely. These unladies couldn't legally vote yet, but they could damn well flap their wings and raise a ruckus. In 1918, all of Harriet and Minna's group texting and tea and Audubon grassroots organizing ultimately hatched the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. This was America's first ever major environmental law, which has effectively protected more than a thousand bird species. The Treaty Act made it illegal to pursue, hunt, take, capture, kill, possess, offer for sale, purchase, or ship wild animals and birds without a federal permit. So feathered ladies became, well, balder. And today, exactly 100 years since that landmark law was signed, we're talking to another woman ruffling political feathers and following in H&M's unladylike footsteps, minus their white socialite privilege. Yeah, this gal is definitely their modern counterpart. Very scientifically important question. If you had to pick one, what's the most unladylike bird? <laughs> the most unladylike bird? For whatever reason, I'm just thinking of the American coot, which is... The goofiest bird that has these crazy, like, floppy feet. And they're just, like, really fun. <laughs> they're just a really fun bird. They're, you know, if you take a coot out um, for, like, a margarita for ladies' night, like, you would have a good time. <laughs> they have huge feet. I know. We, we're, we, we, we Google imaged. These are incredible. Just hanging around being coots. <laughs> Desiree Loggins works for the National Audubon Society in New Mexico, a world away from Harriet and Minna's Boston tea parties. Growing up on the rivers of California's Central Valley, Desiree was an outdoors kid. She loved to go rafting on the Sacramento River with her cousins. And her grandfather actually started the Ebony Boat Club for black boaters after he wasn't allowed to join the other local yachting clubs. In college, Desiree followed her love of the outdoors to studying environmental sciences. She especially loved that her coursework often involved literally looking at nature. I actually was really focused on native plants and habitat restoration. I was always looking at the ground. I was not looking up at birds. Either way, all of your hikes are going to take forever. When we come back from a beak, I, I mean break... Desiree will be our field guide through both a birder's paradise and one of the most politically contested strips of land in the States. Don't fly away. We're back, cooting around with Desiree Loggins, a regional network manager for the Audubon Society based in New Mexico. Desiree's role is to help connect communities across the Southwest with the environmental conservation work that Audubon and its partner organizations do. So it's not strictly about birds, even though Audubon is basically like the OG birdwatching organization. I think when people hear the name Audubon, they, if they 
don't immediately think, oh, birds, they're thinking of the, the Audubon in Germany. They're thinking of maybe a magazine that their grandmother had. So, you know, there are definitely, um, there's a lot of confusion as to like what Audubon actually does. And the act of birding is probably one of the things that we do uh, the least. And so we're really focused on everything that touches birds in order to protect them because we really do believe that their their health and mobility is, is tied to the health of human communities. To uh, make a maybe bad pun, are birds essentially the canaries in the coal mine for like our human health? <laughs> yeah. So that <laughs> the <laughs> if you read any sort of if you go attend an Audubon meeting or <laughs> read any of our reports, we're like using all of the puns, all of the cliches, <laughs> um, you know, we got to, you know, we're going to solve this water crisis by killing two birds with one stone because it affects communities, <laughs> it connects birds. Birds are the canaries in the coal mine. That's our favorite pun that we use when we're talking about our climate work. But even though Audubon does a ton of stuff other than getting people to go birding, the birders like Kellen are crucial to understanding just how, as Desiree says, Birds' health and mobility is tied to the health of human communities. Basically, birders double as civilian scientists who are inadvertently collecting a ton of helpful data on birds' migration habits, species sizes, habitats, you name it. That's a huge resource for the professional ornithologists, ecologists, and even medical researchers because of how bird populations' health can mirror ours. In the early 2000s, for instance, scientists figured out that crows suddenly dying is an indicator of West Nile virus. Bird specimens have been used to track the evolution of influenza as well as pollution and habitat restoration and destruction all over the world. From an environmental and public health perspective, it really is important to look at the birds. They're, they're heavily impacted by climate, by the health of water, by the amount of green space that's in an area, all of the things that really impact our daily lives and our health and happiness impact birds. But they're just, you know, they're so um, sensitive. And we have a lot of data to that sort of tracks how they're moving throughout time and space. And so we can say, oh, okay, if this is, ha- this is impacting birds, we already know that, you know, something is coming for humans down the line. And so we don't necessarily think as... Um, protecting the environment and birds separate from communities because they're all really one and the same. We're trying to protect the whole environment um, through birds. Which brings us to one of Desiree's primary projects with Audubon. It concerns this one preserve in particular that's a haven for birds and the folks who watch them in the Southwest. Santa Ana Wildlife Refuge is in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas, South Texas. Um, and so it's right on the border between Texas and Mexico. And it's this huge, world-renowned sanctuary for birds that if, if you haven't been to Texas, you might not think that it's in Texas if you see a picture of it. Because it's, it's actually quite tropical where there's Spanish moss hanging from the trees and, like, really thorny shrubs. And it's just lush and green and there's lots of water and there are just birds, birds everywhere. So many birds. It's a vacation spot for more than 400 species of migrating birds and 300 types of butterflies to boot. And the site of an environmental battle over the border wall. 
Right. Now, Trump isn't the first president to want a border wall. In fact, construction of a U.S.-Mexico wall at different sections of the border started all the way back with the Secure Fences Act in 2006. And throughout the past 12 years, there's been a bunch of waffling over what to do about places like Santa Ana, which sit right on the border, but are protected by laws like that Migratory Bird Treaty Act that our gals H&M got on the books. Some walls and structures already exist very close by, though. I mean, some birding trails are already cut off. But when Trump took office, he invoked an expediting law from 2015 that would let him build through Santa Ana and brush off any environmental regulations. So that means that the Endangered Species Act was waived. The Clean Water Act was waived. The National Environmental Policy Act was waived. And this mattered to Desiree and Audubon for a lot of reasons. A big one, obviously, is all those birds who make the Santa Ana wetlands their home. Building more of a wall through the refuge would not only introduce flooding concerns and unnatural materials into the birds' ecosystem, but it would also fragment their migratory paths every year. And I think some people think, you know, hey, Audubon, birds can fly. <laughs> what gives? Um, but I think, you know, again, we're, we're, we're focused on the whole ecosystem. And so Birds and wildlife need habitat that's connected to complete their life cycle. And so when you have fragmentation, you're seeing um, an uptick in predators. You're seeing, you know, reduced space for nesting. um, And you're really encroaching on valuable resources that birds need to survive. Think about your backyard fence (laughs) and how, you know, you might wake up one morning and there's a hawk perched on it. Um, and how, you know, it's looking down at ev- everything else and, and can really have that ad- advantage. And you might see, you know, other smaller birds hanging out in your yard. And, and this hawk from that vantage point is able to swoop down and prey on those birds. And so th- the same thing is going to be happening um, at the border where, you know, not all birds are flying these great heights. Not all birds are these 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 larger predators. And so you can think about how just like the hawk in your backyard uses the fence as a way to prey on other creatures, (laughs) they're going to be using the border wall um, in the same way. And beyond a space for birds, the Santa Ana Refuge is also a space for people, whether birders and other ecotourists or families who've lived in the area for generations. Desiree was there in January for a Save the Santa Ana rally. It was held by the Border Coalition, a collective of environmental organizations, environmental justice groups, and other community organizers working to oppose the border wall. It was really sort of like a rally saying Santa Ana is ground zero for this awful border wall project. And it got people on the ground and energized them. It gave them actions. Local legislators attended. Local tribes attended. And it was really, and, and, and birders attended. Desiree said that the rally had a big impact on how she thought about the human repercussions of the border wall. I was just walking around and talking to people, and there were folks from Montana, California, and Florida, but there were also just people that, like, lived around the way. Community members that are like, yes, you know, my um, parents were farm workers that, like, worked at the farm next door to Santa Ana, and I grew up coming here, and this is sort of unacceptable because this is a part of my heritage, or talking to people who were um, indigenous to the area and, you know, talking about, you know, the history of colonization in that area and then how now the U.S. is coming in again to build a wall that will, you know, cut through their tribal lands. 
And so that was just, it made the issue more real because I had been reading about it from my home in Sacramento and being outraged about it and, and signing a petition and talking to friends of, of Mexican heritage. But, you know, going to Santa Ana and talking to the people really sort of underscored that this was a real issue that even, you know, if Trump for whatever reason is impeached or, um, you know, I don't know, decides to quit or whatever he decides to do, this there's a lasting impact on how people see themselves as as Texan or, you know, how they see themselves totally. So, Do you think that if we ask people to kind of care about the birds— can we? Are we also asking them to care about the people on the border as well? I mean, are are those? A, is that the way that we can kind of connect this maybe issue for people? Yeah, if we do a good job, <laughs> if we do a good job in like being truthful about what the issue is and everything that it touches, I think that can be a way for people to relate. See, a border wall is never just the wall itself, at least as far as its effects are concerned. About 150 feet basically has to be bulldozed on either side to create a border wall enforcement zone. And that means no more habitat, no more nesting and foraging grounds, no more wetlands, and therefore fewer birds. And if you displace the birds, you're probably displacing people too. In the process of acquiring the land and building the wall, the government is often condemning people's property. And even if folks can say the looming presence of a border wall isn't exactly hospitable. In June, the federal budget gave the Trump administration funding to start construction on the wall. But because Santa Ana had become such a political issue, there was language protecting the wildlife refuge, which is definitely a win. It is a win, but the fight is not over. Um, Yeah, yeah, it's a win, but it's sort of a mixed win. See, the Santa Ana Refuge is just one section of the Rio Grande Valley. Sure, it's been temporarily protected, but the neighboring National Butterfly Center or the Roma Bluffs World Birding Center, all of these other sites around it haven't been protected, temporarily or not. But it's not stopping Desiree from calling Audubon and its thousands of members' attention to the border. Back in the spring, Audubon published an article about Desiree and her work with the Border Coalition. And when I scrolled down to the bottom, I noticed it was the only article with a deluge of negative comments. You know, folks complaining about how they didn't want their hobby ruined by a bunch of liberal politics. Desiree says, though, that those folks are kind of missing the point. For a very long time, Birding and the environment were thought of as being completely removed from people and history and those cultural contexts. And it was something that you did to escape politics and all of these sort of messy things. And so I think that we're having a moment where Audubon is saying, no, we're not removed from history and culture and people. This is a part of what conservation is. It's a part of what our staff are experiencing. Um, And it's really is linked to, to birds. She says, just think of your favorite park or bird perch. Think about the impact climate change, air pollution, and privatization of public lands could have on your experience there. Or, you know, the birds' experience. I think that we're 
coming up against a narrative that has existed and strengthened for a really long time. And, and, and we're trying to disrupt and change that and saying, hey, you know, these issues are bird issues and we can't protect birds unless we think about these important political issues. Caroline, it seems like Desiree is really walking in Harriet and Minna's footsteps. Like she's taking this fight forward, her and other people on the front lines as well, thinking not just about the birds, but this fascinating, almost magical relationship between birds and people and women in particular. Because at the top of the show, we wanted to know how a seemingly daintified hobby like this could make any sort of personal or political difference for women today. And what's really fascinating is to see how those personal and political differences are almost inextricably linked, kind of like in feminism, how the personal is political, you know? Yeah. And that actually reminds me of something that Kellen said. Oh, if everybody could just look at the birds, it would be a better place. Stop and listen to the birds, people. We all heard Kellen. Make the world a better place. Watch some birds. And if you're curious about it, all we have to say is try it. I mean, it it seems pretty easy. You know, you, you listen, you look. Maybe you get some binoculars. A sketch pad. Yeah. And we recommend Googling around for local guided tours because there are birding tours that can accommodate all sorts of people and abilities as well. So be sure, too, to look up your local Audubon Society chapter. And why not get out in nature? Get away from your phones. Again, unless you're listening to our podcast <laughs> on your phone. Or bird calls on your phone. <laughs> True. Uh, you can find out, though, all sorts of resources for that on unladylike.com. And while you're there, we highly recommend pre-ordering a copy of our book, Unladylike, a field guide to smashing the patriarchy and claiming your space. It comes out in just one week, October 2nd. But if you pre-order right now, y'all can get a free Unladylike pen and a set of downloadable phone wallpapers illustrated by Tyler Fetter, who did the amazing illustrations in our book. It's a win, 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 win. But in order to get those pre-order goodies, you've got to use the pre-order link in this episode's description. It's a Snap app link, uh, so you can click on that. And in the meantime, you can hit us up by emailing us at hello at unladylike.co or on social at unladylike media. Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Mixing and sound design is by Casey Holford. Julie Subert is our editor. Ash Sanders and Abigail Barr transcribe our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit McCohen, and Sarah Tugson. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radlett. Special thanks to Catherine Fink and the studio at KSFR. And we are your hosts, Caroline Irvin and Kristen Conger. And next week, we're doing something a little special. Our producer, Abigail, is going to put us in the hot seat and make us tell her all of the embarrassing behind-the-scenes deets about our book. We did consider Dear Dead Women, Dead Women's Guide to Life, (laughs) and Networking with Dead Women was on the list as well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I like that in my original notes, like handwritten notes, I have 
Pro, playful contrast, you know, dead feminist. Con, morbid. Make sure you subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss it. And remember, y'all, got a problem? Get unladylike. So, like, if you see 100 crows, say, that's just one type of bird you get to check off. And it's also a sign that death is coming for you. Yeah. You see, <laughs> I think that's multiple murders of crows if there are 100. Yeah. Stitcher. <laughs>